sifter.com.au. Hello and welcome to Lightmap, Sifter's interview podcast. My name is Gianni DiGiovanni. Thank you so much for listening. Summerfall Studios' Stray Gods, the role-playing musical, broke ground when it was first released. It was a role-playing game where you actually chose how the songs unfolded. Nothing like it has really been tried before or since. It was the brainchild of the team at Summerfall, alongside composer Austin Wintery and these musical minstrels at Tripod and singer-songwriter Montaigne. Stray Gods also broke new ground, being the very first Australian-made game to be nominated for a Grammy Award. I sat down with Liam Esler from Summerfall, Austin Wintery, Scott Edgar and Simon Hall from Tripod, and singer-songwriter Montaigne, and we discussed how this project all came together and what the process of writing a branching musical adventure actually was like. Before we jump into that, though, let's find out what's been making news this week on Sifter's weekly news podcast, Walkthrough. Hi, I'm Kyle Paletto. And I'm Gianni DiGiovanni. And here are the top stories this week on Walkthrough, Sifter's weekly news podcast for Sunday, 5th of May. Escape from Tarkov developers relent, allowing access to PvE mode for players who bought an all-DLC bundle, but not before saying... Sorry, you're mad. Solo developed Manor Lords and indie city builder break sales and Steam records. Take Two shuts down studios behind Kerbal Space Program and Oli Oli World. And we wrap all the cool things announced at ID at Xbox. You can get every episode of Walkthrough for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and on our website, sifter.com.au, every Sunday. Lightmap, interesting conversations with video game creators. This all started a long time ago when Liam and I met through kind of chance circumstances when I just sort of ad hoc said to a friend that it would be amazing if there could be and a, a video game musical where songs are the core pillar of the gameplay and they're not an interstitial kind of reward because I think in the very few handful of games up to that point where there were kind of musical number type moments, it was, you know, it was a cutscene between traditional gameplay bits or it was a reward of some kind or something that would maybe underscore a scripted event but there was nothing really interactive about the music and certainly nothing narratively interactive where different choices will yield wildly different story outcomes and not just superficial level musical changes. And so Liam and I met with this kind of abstract pipe dream of wouldn't it be amazing to do that? And I always explain it that, you know, it was like handshake and a hug and five seconds into our first meeting, it was like, we're doing this. This was five years ago, more than five years ago now. And then very quickly after that came that moment like in Independence Day where they make the pitch on, okay, we're going to fly the crashed alien ship up to the mothership. We're going to plant the computer virus that is inexplicably universal in its ability to hack computer systems. Uh, and they're going to save the world. And everybody goes, okay, great, let's do it. And then they look at each other and realize, oh, crap, we actually have to do this. Uh, this is apparently a plan that people are bought into now. And there was a little bit of that moment with this game where you know it's like okay let's start gathering up a team and then going oh my god how does this work uh and so 
the initial steps were we made some prototypes early on, initially just kind of mock-ups that faked the idea but gave a taste of what the potential of it might be. And then from there, dove into the project proper. And and so one of the first things that I did was to, to reach out to these folks here, the rest on the call, and say, we got to build out this team. There's a ton to do. <laughs> There's not a lot of people who I would necessarily trust. I think from there, I think, Scott, maybe do you want to pick up? Because I feel like uh, a lot of the work that you did early on was like so much about like the structure of those songs and how they came together. Oh, thank you, Liam. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, look, it was a really interesting challenge for which I felt I'd been training my whole life, to be honest. I've been doing a lot of games writing in my career and also a lot of, obviously, songwriting. Uh, and we were looking for, look, the core challenge by the time it came to us, I feel like was, yes, let's talk about a, a traditional narrative branching tree like we've seen in games before, but if it's musical, the challenge then becomes how do you make it still feel like a good song, you know, that was always going to be good, that was always going to have the, you know, the, the right sort of climaxes and journey for the, for the, for the punter, even though they're making different choices through it. So that was the challenge. And thankfully we already had a thousand years of songwriting theory to, to turn to. And so it really became about our, our initial crutch being, all right, well, what if we just take traditional pop song structure and sort of map that to, a, to the player's journey through all the branching narratives, which would mean that certain nodes become choruses and if we've heard that chorus before we know we're going to hear it again and the thing's going to start to feel like it's got uh, a bit of sort of unity to it you know and a, a bit of a journey and and so it was really about trying to map this very new art form of narrative of narrative branching storytelling with a very old art form of of songwriting structure you know and that was a really fascinating piece of system design that you know that I think we really dove into at the start and and kind of needed to crack that before we could sort of stand back and go hey maybe this is possible you know 100% because I think that like when we had done our initial uh, sort of stabs at what songs could look like they were very much these like linear expressions where we were like well we know we can do something like this we're pretty sure it's possible but like what we really lacked was that sort of that theory, that background, that knowledge in like how to write a good song. And so like when uh, Tripod initially came on what to work with uh, to Austin and, and Dave, our creative director and myself, it was just like a, a, a breath of fresh air to be like, oh, thank God someone knows what they're doing. And then we very quickly all realized, oh, fuck. Nobody knows what this looks like because nobody's ever done it before. And so it became this like really like challenging process of trying to find out like how do we make, like how do we preserve player agency and make the player feel like they're in control and that they can play any version of Grace that they want to. How can we make songs sound consistent all the way through? Dave's whole theory was that we could use songs to kind of shortcut a lot of the um, emotion that we needed to get across to the player, which we very quickly were able to prove out. And from there, it was like, okay, well, 
if you've got these song pieces, then how does that fit into the broader narrative? And then how do we make that work? And how do we make this a cohesive sort of piece of art that is not a musical, that is not quite a traditional video game, but sits somewhere in between? I'm curious where the, the, the Venn diagram of all your different particular styles crosses over, because uh, yeah, where did, how did that all come together? I know Austin, you said you sort of assembled this this dream team of, of musicians to put this together, but where is the overlap and, and what sort of parts of those that process were you doing each? One of the things that we all agreed to early on, which was really cool, was that we approached the songwriting in a very old fashioned kind of, you know, sit around the piano, even if it's through Zoom over an ocean and write them in a very stripped down way, broadly speaking, as opposed to building up super elaborate demos that just need someone to come in and replace the vocals. And there were sort of two main reasons for that. Number one is it made it so that when we eventually get all our actors in here, there's still a lot of room for them to bring character and and just nuance to it and, and real notions of who these characters are so that the song was not ultra prescriptive of, okay, you're now slotting into this tiny little box that we've basically solved all the the questions for you for. And so that was one big reason, because we ended up also having this absolutely just incredible dream team of actors. And so it would have really um, shortchanged what they could bring to it as well if the songs were, you know, more sort of concrete. Now, that's not to say they weren't written in great detail i just mean it was like a piano or a guitar or maybe a very rudimentary kind of drum track or something but it wasn't like a full-on production that you hear in the final at all even close um and so that was reason number one for that but also reason number two kind of a is for your question is that when you boil everything just down to a voice singing or a few voices singing and a piano or maybe some guitar chords you're kind of putting it like a black and white pencil sketch where all the eccentricities that make us all different from one another kind of get minimized. And it's just about the craft of songwriting now. It's about can the melody and the lyrics hang on their own without all the bells and whistles of cool production and that sort of thing. And if that's the case, then once all that's worked out, you know, I was kind of straddled across multiple songwriting teams and everybody's pitching in and throwing ideas into the middle. Then once that part was done, it was my job to then spend two years figuring out how to make that a cohesive final product. Um, and so by kicking it down the road, it just gave us more time to think about ways to achieve that, you know, whether it's through production or orchestration, all that kind of stuff. So it's a slightly long-winded answer, but hopefully that kind of gives a sense of it. Yeah. So, I mean, following on from there, I think in terms of what the like division of responsibilities and like what we actually did which is really interesting as well, is like Tripod were responsible for the big interactive numbers. So these were like the big meaty pieces of the game that uh, had like significant branching uh, that required like a lot of a lot of attention to detail from a like, oh, this is 20 to 40 minutes of music per song. Uh, how do you pull that all together? How do you make something that is cohesive, that tells a story, that fits with everything else? And, you know, that those went through many, many drafts. Like, I think, Jan, I think like the, it was probably the Apollo song we like probably <laughs> went through the most. We did two entire drafts that were, I think, entirely binned. Yeah. And then I think there was another one as well, like a, a secondary one. 
Oh, I just wanted to underline your observation there, Liam, and it really brought it all back to me. 20 to 40 minutes per song of material, like the amount of, I mean, this is with every game, right, but the amount of stuff that the player doesn't see is vast, you know. Insane. Yeah, in in a playthrough, it's very much the tip of the iceberg, you know. I think that's a huge part of the value of the game is the replayability of it because you really can, you're not playing the same game again. Like it's super different in in the in the emotional rides because the 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 choices you make not uh, don't just affect the story but they affect the whole sort of musical flavor and there are whole there are whole, whole entire hooks and themes that you just won't hear if you make certain choices 100 i can't overstate how valuable it was to work on this with a group of folks the three of them from tripod and of course montaigne and everybody at summerfall who actually really understands the full potential of what Jan just said, because it would be really easy to go, well, yeah, we made this musical where if you click this one, the character says, I hate you. But if they, if you click this one, they go, I dislike you and like pat yourself on the back going, we made an interactive musical number. And it was like, we have to go so much farther than that to really make it feel like if two different people played this and compared notes at the water cooler, so to speak, they would be shocked they played the same game. That was sort of the fantasy. And just to, yeah, to, to your point, Austin, about clicking one thing and says, I hate you, what we ended up with in terms of solving how to do, you know, choruses in particular was that maybe I click the button that says, I hate you, and I've established that those are the lyrics of the chorus now. And now, as a writer, we later on have to work out how to use those same lyrics, I hate you, but have it mean all these different things depending on what the player has subsequently chosen, which as a writing challenge and as a sort of, you know, a test of your grasp of subtext and the way the same words can mean different things was such a fascinating challenge as, as, as writers. It, it, it literally was the coolest thing to, you know, especially these tripod guys on these really elaborate branching songs where the ability to flip around words and, and the economy of taking just a few little kernels to form a recurring hook that is hopefully very memorable, but have to squeeze it through 50 million variations to what Scott just said. I mean, that 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 principle of okay the the hook says I hate you but at the end of the song it's it's now a love song so you're figuring out how the hell do we say the words I hate you to mean I love you that's what we found ourselves having to do and you know the initial pitch from me to Liam and David was to bring the three of them in as lyricists uh, we had we had we had worked in we had worked in a bunch of different capacities before from me orchestrating their fully written songs to us writing music together to them just setting lyrics to music that I'd fully written, but I'm not a lyricist. I don't, I don't, that's one of those Achilles heels for me. And so we had kind of hit the full spectrum of possibilities. And I initially said, you know, let's just bring them in as lyricists, but because they're all gamers and this is all easily said of Montaigne as well. um, This notion of the branching was so second nature that everybody just quickly just started throwing tons of ideas. And like Scott mentioned earlier on, we were very quickly talking about design and systems and melodies and hooks and, and everybody was contributing to, to everything. And it, it exploded beyond lyrics within the first 10 minutes. And uh, yeah, it was, it was just awesome to behold. I cannot 
fathom having pulled this off with different people. I just simply can't because it was so much work. Like, and the, the other part of this too, obviously, like um, romance is a really big part of uh, any game that uh, David Gator writes. I'm a big romance fan myself and was a pretty key part of how he'd structured the story of Stray Gods was that the, the protagonist would likely have a romance. And um, Dave and I initially were like, we'll do those. That'll be fine. That'll be easy. And uh, very quickly we're like, well, no, that's super not easy actually. And so we looked for somebody who we felt could really uh, resonate with the themes of the game and the characters and and create a really interesting sort of retelling of some of these uh, romantic interactions. And uh, we were lucky enough that that Jess Montaigne came on board and uh, helped us to write those songs and co-write like the first song in the game, Adrift, which is, you know, become one of the, the most popular sort of songs out there for the game. And I think that Jess, like the, the way that you were able to like hook in and create like romance for players, like within like two minutes, I think each song is like roughly, like there are so many players who have like, who just cry over those songs and uh they're such like a key part of that experience um like those though they're like quite short they are at the at the emotional core of the experience for a lot of players and that was like an incredible challenge to put on somebody um you know we had this challenge of these like gigantic branching numbers on the one hand where it's like here's breadth go do breadth and then we were like now jess (laughs) you have two minutes you have to do all of this. Tell me more about that, Jess. Oh, well, you know, I find that easy. It's easy when you don't really know the stakes, I would say. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I don't know. I think as with most projects I do, I sort of just sign up not really knowing what I'm getting into and then just throw myself at it and then it's usually, like, doable. <laughs> Um, at the minimum. And I think it's like, you know, it was really easy working with Austin and, and all of the material that was being provided to me from the studio so that I knew what was going on and stuff. A lot of it was just, you know, cause Austin's in LA, just emails and being like, is this good? Does it, you know, relate to the story? Does it feel like I'm explaining this character's motivations well enough? Because this is, you know, I've been songwriting my whole life and um, rhyming is very easy. And as long as you can find a rhyme, you can probably write a song. And uh, I don't know, yeah, like the two-minute thing is probably easier for me because that's the length of songs that I write generally. Or, you know, probably a bit longer, but around that, you know, the two- to four-minute range. So, yeah, it was really fun. It was really, like, relieving or... or um, it was just a bit of a weight off my shoulders as well to be able to write to a brief rather than to my soul. <laughs> to be corny about it, but you get yeah. sick of your own soul, don't you? You do. <laughs> it gets tiresome, or at least you know, just to be able to say like, here are the parameters of a thing, and just write within that. That's actually there's there's a lot of ease in that. I I think anyway. So yeah. Something that was also recurring with regard to those romance songs was, you know, in the case of the the main songs, the scratch vocals that the actors would hear were basically sung by the the guys from Tripod. And, And so these romance songs naturally were all sung by Jess. 
And even in cases where it was clearly sung like on a cell phone and then, and, and not, not to a click or any kind of metronome or anything where I then had to kind of edit it and time stretch it and do all this stuff to make it fit within the, the song so that we could then have the actor record to it without just, you know, having to kind of emulate a cell phone recording, even despite all the mangling, it was such a classic recurring thing that the actors would hear this voice and, and go, Oh man, I got to replace this. Uh, Cause just like, it's so funny because I think tripod have a lot of musical theater background in them. And so there was a real understanding of let's try to record these in a very kind of knowingly scratch very character neutral way. And also the fact that like, there's a lot of female characters that are, have scratches that are being sung by, by guys. So there was a certain amount of singing out of their most natural kind of ideal range as well. And, and so there's like multiple, but, but in the case of these romance songs, it was just so funny how like even the most hacked up scratches just sounded so awesome. Because of Jess's voice. And yeah, it was just such a classic. It was such every single session. And we always tried to not say, you should emulate this. But then there were definitely a couple times. I, I specifically remember Troy on, on um, I think it was on the, the Persephone. I mean, yeah, the Persephone romance with Mary Elizabeth McGlynn, where it was like, so don't feel too beholden to the scratch, but like, let's listen to it because it's pretty freaking awesome um it was that was a really funny sort of like the the worst the best way to intimidate all these you know these great actors they all were you know who's who's singing this anyway it was just a very funny thing that happened on every session you know over the years and i've done reporting on games so many people have told me that games are so much closer to theater than often the category they're put into, which is film, because um, people look at it as a screen. Can you talk to me about that relationship and, and why a lot of people haven't done what you've done? I think immediately um, the, the thing that immediately comes to mind is that the theater is more interactive than film. Like even if it just means, you know, you're sitting in a theater and, and you're clapping but you are kind of riding the performer a little bit when you're an audience. You are you are kind of you're affecting what they do a bit, and so that's that's probably why why that's a thing. My all of my education was theatre, um, and coming into games, I thought that that would be useless, um, and it turned out that that was probably the most useful thing I could have done as a narrative designer because, like, from my perspective, it's the player is both actor and audience in many ways, and so like the uh, writing for games is like writing for theater where you have to, you just have to do so much more in such a weirdly different space. Whereas film is very sort of like the, the interaction occurs between the screen and someone's interpretation. And that's the only sort of interactivity that occurs. Whereas like on a stage, it's more like improv in many cases. Like there are so many, there might be a script, but there are so many ways that scripts can be performed. And uh, that's very much the case with games. The, the notion of invoking improv specifically with Stray Gods was something that I mentioned a lot where the greatest improv groups that you see, you know, there's obviously that whole axiom of the, the yes and mentality of like, we're going to build off of each other and really kind of roll with a thread here. And even though a video game 
uh, particularly one that's comprised of a bunch of pre-authored content. It's not like it's procedurally generated in, at runtime or something. Uh, nonetheless, the goal was to make so much content that it it felt like we could come within a, a breadth of that spirit of improv where you, because it's not about winning. It's not about gaming the system or figuring out like the best version of grace or any of those kinds of things. Like despite the fact that some people have those opinions on like stray gods, best endings and that sort of thing on YouTube. But the idea is just sort of what would you do if, if, if this pan character appears moments after you've been told you're now a God and you're accused of murder and this, Maybe he's creepy, but maybe he's not. And he's definitely charismatic, but he definitely seems like he has an ace up his sleeve and he's playing an angle. How do you react to that guy? The goal was to give the player a a tool set that let them honestly answer that differently enough from one player to the other that it almost was like improv. The other thing I would also add about the the, the camaraderie between theater and games relative to film is I think also... Theater at its best encourages a suspension of disbelief where the player is really losing themselves in it at, at, according to their own imagination. You know, like when you go, I mean, look at Hamilton is, is to me one of the best go-to examples recently because the staging is so minimal and, and it's so easy to get lost in it. And when you go and you see it live, you're doing all the work. And, you know, there's some musicals that, that you know like lion king and other kind of more recent where there's huge amounts of visual spectacle going on but even with that there's still it's it still requires buy-in from you and i think that games have always excelled at that you know you get you get i'll never forget once i was evangelizing for mass effect as i do all the time to a friend who's a filmmaker and i was saying you know you have to see this scene and i pulled up a scene from mass effect two or three and I said, this is, this is drama on an operatic level. And then you know how you have those moments where you sit with someone and you kind of see it through their eyes and you have that sort of telepathic. It, it fell so flat. Uh, I remember watching it through his eyes and thinking, this is like embarrassing. Because I realized coming in cold and not being the player, all that suspension of disbelief and all that buy-in and projection and all those things that we do, he didn't have all that working for him the way you do you do when you actually have a controller in your hand or a keyboard and mouse or whatever. And uh, so, and I think that that's theater's been built on that for half a millennium, you know? Just to your point about buy-in, Austin, I, it just makes me remember. I, I remember the first time I saw Pong. And I remember the first time I saw Space Invaders. And in both cases, as a kid, looking at these pixelated squares, I was just, I was hearing the roar of the crowd in Pong. I was seeing those tennis players diving around the court, right, and sweating, you know, and grunting. And and in Space, and when I saw Space Invaders, I was standing in a foyer in a hotel in Glenelg. And nonetheless, there I was, you know, battling these hordes of, of horrific aliens, you know, and, and there's so much filling the gaps that we, you know, that we want to do when, you know, when we're faced with that kind of stuff. Well, the, 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 the history, my personal history with Tripod began about a decade ago when the Melbourne Symphony commissioned them to do an evening length piece called This Gaming Life where they wrote a bunch of songs about 
being nerdy gamers and whatnot. And it's, we jokingly called it a, like a symphonic cabaret show. And it's still to this day, one of my absolute favorite things I've ever been lucky enough to be part of. They wrote these incredible songs and, and really kind of turned me loose to explode them into these just massive, massive orchestral pieces. And to Scott's point, one of my absolute favorite bits on that show is a song called squares on a screen where there's this back and forth juxtaposition of what the outside world sees where they're a bunch of stiff moving kind of Tetris pieces. And we scored it with literally just a cheesy wood block doing this like duck, 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 and a string quartet. And then the three of them would start singing, describing what they see. And it was this elaborate description of that's a time traveling spaceship. That's going to rescue the daughter of the scientist and all that. And the orchestra is just going absolutely crazy portraying the scene. And I always thought that was such an autobiographical thing for anybody that's ever especially you know come of age in an earlier era of gaming and it's funny how now when you like you know we 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 sort of as as we've as we've grown up with games we've watched them get more and more photorealistic but i mean minecraft is so huge and you're just looking at these ridiculous blocks it's obviously all just going on in the player's head it's still that's still the thing you know it's all theatre of the mind. It's been a really interesting time for, for game music in particular. And, you know, this is the second year that the Grammy has a specific game music category. First time an Australian game has ever been nominated. Australian made, of course, the team is worldwide as well. But can you tell me a little bit about what that submission process looks like? Because what do you put forward? Is there a canon version of each of these songs that you put in like you know how does that actually work you can't say i'm sure you didn't just send them a steam key right yeah that's actually a pretty savvy question to ask because it 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 taps into the the bigger question of how we could possibly release a soundtrack album to this monstrous beast and so um i uh you know after agonizing it over it for about a year came to the conclusion of well our principal mechanic revolves around you know, a red, a green, and a blue choice. I will make a soundtrack album that's basically what if you just hit each one of those colors over and over and over and over and over through the entire game, you'd end up with a kind of odd version of it, but a viable one. So that's three albums right there. And then a fourth album where I then kind of made a list of all the material that the, that was removed, but it was covered in the, the pure red, green, blue and thought, what's kind of the most interesting eclectic path through that will overlap the least with those others? Because s- some songs you can you can not overlap at all, and then others you have kind of glancing blows at material that you might hear on other albums. It, it really varied song by song by song. So I came up with one that was sort of, I called the Pantheon edition, and I that one's also twice as long because it includes all the underscore that I wrote between the songs that helps tee up the songs or plays out after you finish them and things like, you know, the ending credit sequence and that sort of stuff. So you end up with this kind of, it's sort of like the, it's sort of like the um, director's cut. I, I never liked framing it that way though, because the whole shtick was there's no definitive version. There's no best one. And if you just hit green over and over and over and over and over and over, that should be, if we've done our jobs just as interesting and rewarding of an experience as if you hit things at random and vice and, and any other possible idea. So 
there's a definite compromise to that in terms of the then having solved that the Grammys, you know, is all about commercial album releases. You know, they're not evaluating. This is not a best original score award show the way that the Dice Awards are, the GDC, you know, best audio for the Developers Awards or the or the um, Dice Awards, uh, BAFTAs, things like that, the Game Awards where you're evaluating it, where yes, you are given Steam keys and you're instructed to, like I've been on the BAFTA jury before, for example, they send you Steam keys and then they have a jury where everybody gets together and they fight about which ones they thought were the best based on having played the game. This is not that. The category is called Best Score Soundtrack Album for Interactive Media. And so the whole point is that it's about commercial release of albums. And so I made the... I, I decided to submit only that Pantheon edition just because I've, I remember last year seeing um, I, I won't throw under the bus who it was, but I remember some colleagues of mine, you know, I've been on, I've been a Grammy voter for a long time and I've seen the evolution of these things. And, and last year when the first year of that ballot of the video game category showed up, it was interesting how there were a few titles that had released a bunch of DLCs and a bunch of, and the, this version and that, version, and they were all on the ballot. And as individual submissions. So it, it puts you in a position of going, well, you know, I'd love to support this project, but it's super fragmented on what is representing it. So I, I made sure to not have that problem. And I only submitted the Pantheon one, even though theoretically, philosophically, all of them we should hope are sort of creatively equally eligible. But I remember a few years ago, the same thing happened when, Stranger Things first came out, it's like season one, and Michael Stein and Kyle Dixon, the two composers who, who score that show, th- there, because there was so much music in even just the first season, they released volume one, volume two, both long albums independently, and I saw them both on the ballot, and it was such a big moment in our culture that I remember thinking, ah, oh, man, they shouldn't have done that. They've kind of hurt themselves. Well, it shows what I know. Both of them got nominated. Uh, they, they, were, they were nominated against themselves internally in that category for life of me i can't remember what one um this was ages ago now um season one is like eight years ago or something but but um but anyway so yeah that's the submission process is is that you, you kind of pick your battles the, the the team are sick of me saying this probably but my ambition has always been that when you finish playing the game you get a little code which you then punch in i mean liam takes care of all this and uh, and then you get an album of your of your playthroughs, you know, that you can download. God, I wish we looked into the, we we seriously looked into this because like it's it would be so cool, but the the technical like parts of it are so complicated, particularly around like a platform like Spotify, which you did have to be out on. Yeah, you wouldn't and you wouldn't be able just, to do it on Spotify. Yeah. Oh, it's insane. Because yeah. I was like, well, how how could we do something like that? Blah, but we just weren't able to. <laughs> The best version we have of that is that people just screen record their playthrough and put they it on put YouTube. They put their playthroughs on YouTube, yeah, which and is actually, so cool. And yeah, I have it to is say, great. It, it is great. It has led to this cool shorthand that I never thought about where people are like, oh, man, I played, you know, Challenging a Queen, but mine was R-R-G-B-R. And, like, everyone uses these letters of the colors as their way to describe the song. It's almost like the Konami code. I thought it was so cool. I never would have thought of that. What are you all most proud of? I actually have, a, have to maybe have a little think about it. I, I think, I think I, I'm proud of the songwriting. Like, I, I, I haven't, except for, well, 
this is the funny thing is I've I've written songs and top line for another Greek myth property before musical well, not musical theater it's a, a theater production so I wasn't exactly green to it but it you know definitely is a different thing having to write the three alternate you know options depending on temperament or whatever so I guess I'm proud of being able to to try a new skill and and do it successfully but also you know zooming into songs I specifically always get the Freddie romance song in my head and I I really like the the top line writing I did on that so yeah that one probably Jess I um because I, I was the one who put together the finale and a lot of it and a lot of it was putting together because I was it you know we wanted to pull in a lot of themes that had already been established depending on your playthrough and um that's one of my favorite that's one of my favorite tunes that I got to tinker with and try and write lyrics for it yeah really I really enjoy that I really enjoy that particular piece I think I'm I'm the I'm the what are you most proud of I think I'm just most proud to be part of a thing that no one's ever done before yeah that was going to be mine too I I think this is no (laughs) this has got the potential I think to occupy a Dune 2-esque place in games history you know Uh, I think that it does demonstrate that uh, there's a genre out there that's possible, you know. I, I I can I can sort of echo those sentiments. I I felt I've been very lucky in my career overall that I've been able to work on a lot of different types of projects that had that kind of maverick vibe to them. They were trying something that was bold and different, and and you know even in a case like Assassin's Creed which was a thoroughly entrenched franchise by the time I joined into it. The mandate was try something musically that's a total about face from the rest of the the IP and that sort of thing. So this has been a recurring notion, I guess, that I've just been lucky that, that I've been in a perpetual state of being challenged to go somewhere. But this was by far the biggest reach. It just, you know, it's, it truly is the only time that we we had nothing to look to to, to kind of guide us or to to tell or even to to go okay we don't want to do that that's sort of they did it one way and all power to them there was just nothing we were totally and so I guess to, the most distilled answer to that would be I'm I'm honestly just thrilled we actually shipped it and and it and it and people seem to like it and the actors enjoyed working on it and all these actors are busy on 50 million things they're the best of the best. And they all were like, that was some of the most fun and interesting challenge I've ever had in the booth. Uh, you know, just every one of them came back again and again, really enjoying the process as difficult as it was. And it, all of them suffered. Um, and, and, but I think that that's, that, that's like a, that's sort of a test because, you know, they're, they, they're just going to not return your calls once they've fulfilled their obligation, if they didn't like it, you know, and, but they've all become you know, friends of ours and all that sort of thing. And so I don't know the the fact that there's a lot of times that you kind of pie in the sky, dream a thing and it sounds really awesome. And you might have these flickering moments of thinking, Oh, I can see it perfectly in my head. I can absolutely see it. But then just the realities of getting it done are too high friction and it never, it never happens or countless games are halfway through and, and just, crash and burn and die on the vine and are never heard from and no one even knows that they 
could have existed or anything. So, you know, I, I can only reiterate that this thing wouldn't have been possible without everyone on this call, plus Gatesy very much as well from Tripod, and then the the team at Summerfall, all our cast. I have a giant team of my own that contributed in a million different ways. And and I think the fact that just we we actually got it done, even if you hate it, even if you just go, this is so not my thing. I am so not the kind of player for this this kind of game. I am proud uh, of that it exists in the world. If you type it in to Google, you get back a thing, you get you get results, uh, and it would not have existed without that. Just uh, I think for me, like the a just being able to make it happen, like what an insane thing to have participated in the creation of. Like I think by all rights, it really shouldn't exist. Like it's so out there and bizarre. Um, and at once also just so sensible, like it just makes sense. Once you play it, people often are like, well, how come this hasn't existed before? Yeah, it's like um, musicals are so hard, they're nearly impossible to do well. Games are so hard, they're nearly impossible to do well. Hey, here's a great idea. Let's try and do both. (laughs) Exactly. Like just truly, truly just phenomenal that it exists. Testing one, two, testing three. Is this thing on? Are you testing me with your coterie? Ogling expectantly. Heads up, wrecking me won't come for free. See, it won't be easy, Persephone. When I use the moves I bring blessedly. Shadows don't scare me. See, I'll survive it. Maybe you want to do this in private. You're lost, little girl. You're wasting our time now. The gall of a squeaky mouse in a lion's den. Join the Sifter community on Discord at sifter.com.au forward slash Discord. The 66th annual Grammy Awards will be held on Sunday, 4th of February in the US. That's Monday, 5th of Feb here in Australia. Sifter is produced by Carl Paletto, Fiona Bartholomeus, Courtney Borat, Daniel Ang, Adam Christou, Mitch Lowe is our senior producer, and my name is Gianni De Giovanni, and I'm Sifter's executive producer. If you've enjoyed that, we've got plenty of other interesting interviews with musicians like Cult of the Lambs' Riverboy or Unpacking's Jeff Van Dyke. Just jump into your podcast feed and scroll back in the light map list, and you'll find some other great, insightful conversations. That's all for now. Until next time, have fun. Chris Button here from Drop Rate, Sifter's video game review podcast. Unicorn Overlord might have a strange name, but don't dismiss its tactical prowess. It uses a, a tactics mode, um, and which is similar to the Gambit system that was in Final Fantasy XII for your um, uh, your squad mates. And you can say, okay, well, you know, Hodrick, who's my legionnaire with the big shield, I want him to prioritize protecting the back row. They're going to take the most damage. If they take a physical hit, they're going to go down, but I need them to be protected. So you can get quite granular with this, and I reckon you can build some pretty wild builds that are <laughs> totally game-breaking, um, but it's kind of the fun of the tactical squad-based gameplay in Unicorn Overlord. Tune in to Drop Rate to find out why Unicorn Overlord might just be one of 2024's sleeper hits. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.